Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, April 24th, 2020. I'm Andrew Walworth, and here's a quick look at the week just passed. The economy continues to reel from the corona pandemic as the total number of jobless claims over the past five weeks reached more than 26 million, and economic activity contracts at an unprecedented rate. Meanwhile, anti-quarantine protests continue to flare up, even as some governors move to open their own economies, and some of these governors now are at odds with the president's guidance. And Congress continues to grapple with how to deal with the economic consequences of the pandemic as the House passes another $484 billion economic relief package that includes funding for more testing. And this is the fourth package since March, and it will push the year's uh, budget deficit to as much as $4 trillion. So joining me to talk about all of this are some of my colleagues from Real Clear Politics, Tom Bevan, president and co-founder, Phil Wegman, White House reporter, and Carl Cannon, Washington bureau chief. So Phil, let's start with these governors. Um, president Trump last night said he was displeased with Brian Kemp of Georgia, who he thinks has gone beyond the guidelines set by the White House. What's the dynamic here between the governors and the president? And is this any way to run a pandemic? The dynamic is that the 50 most frustrated people in America are the governors, because at this point, they're getting conflicting advice from the president of the United States. Uh, Just a couple days ago, this president was tweeting that we need to liberate Michigan, we need to liberate uh, Virginia, liberate uh, Minnesota in response to a lot of protests uh, where folks wanted to get back to work. Uh, And then the other day, uh, he goes after uh, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp for opening up his state in a way that the president did not like. There's reporting out today which shows that uh, contrary to President Trump's claims, uh, the governor did speak with the president and the vice president, got the green light and the go ahead. Uh, But it seems now that after public uh, backlash at some of the ways that uh, Kemp was going about this, the president changed his mind and that earned him a shellacking uh, on primetime television. That's something that these other governors are going to be watching very closely uh, as they move forward to, to try and follow through on what President Trump has said has been the goal the whole time, to open up the economy. Thing is, they don't want to be the one who receives his ire uh, from the podium in the briefing room when he suddenly changes his mind. And so, Tom, I mean, is this a sort of a, a strategy on the part of the White House that, uh, that they think will work? In other words, that by not leading on this important topic, that the president somehow won't get stuck with the blame if things go wrong? Well, he's he's getting his fair share of blame from the media and the Democrats, and that will continue no matter what happens. We got more terrible economic news this week, another 4.3 million Americans out of work, 26 million over the last five weeks. This is an economic crisis of, of a huge, huge magnitude. And, and so all of these governors are feeling pressure uh, from protesters and from small business owners and, and people. You know, we need to find a way to get people back to work and reopen businesses. And you know, this, this idea that we can't do that in some sort of careful, moderate fashion, that it's all, you know, it's all one or the other that we have to be completely closed down or completely opened up and putting the public health at risk. I think it's just a, a, a straw argument. I mean, uh, we're seeing these these articles now. We've carried a couple of them on real clear politics that you know Republicans have become the party of death because they want to open the economy. I mean, it's just silly. We should be able to do this uh, in a way that's that's responsible and maintains you know vigilance and social distancing, et cetera, et cetera. But but also balances the public health with 
the economic destruction and devastation that's going on around the country because it is real. Carl? Well, um, I hope that you guys forgive my voice a little raspy this morning because I followed the president's advice and I swallowed some Drano to try and <laughs> make sure that COVID wouldn't infect me. But I seem to be okay now. Tom's right. This is not a, it's a, it's a classic false choice. E.J. Dionne wrote a book many years ago, Why Americans Hate Politics. And one of his conclusions was is that the two political parties are always presenting Americans with two straw man arguments that are false choices. That we don't have to do one or the other. We do need to figure out how to get people who want to work back in the workforce without infecting their neighbors and coworkers. That's the riddle. And the two political parties in Washington are not trying to help us solve that riddle. It seems to me that the governors are doing their best. They're trying to figure it out. It does seem, though, that, um, you know, and I, I uh, about 100 years ago, I worked for a guy named John McLaughlin, who had a talk show, very controversial at the time. He always sort of ended each segment with sort of a binary question. And uh, I talked to him about it once, and he said, you know, the truth is, Andy, it often comes down to a binary question. And that's sort of the essence of, of governing. So, you know, each of these governors does have to make these choices. My question is really, who's going to bear the political blame for things if they go wrong and get the credit if things go right. I think that the Trump administration clearly is in a position where they'll be blamed as the rollouts go poorly. The The administration will also tell you that uh, while they'll receive the fair share of the blame, no matter what, they'll never get the credit. I think that's their current position right now. But it, it's hard to find that a sympathetic argument after we saw the, the show yesterday um, you know, that the president could have focused on some of the success stories of his administration during the pandemic without veering into some pretty uh, unusual areas. Um, so it, it remains to be seen. But I think that um, Trump likely isn't going to be greeted as a as a, a savior on this one. I can't let the media off the hook here either. I mean, I do think, look, Trump has come in for his his fair share of blame, but he has been piled on by the media. And look, some of that's deserved. Fair enough. But you've also seen the media lionizing, you know, Andrew Cuomo, who New York accounts for 50% of the deaths. I mean, it's been uh, an absolute train wreck in New York. Uh, in my home state of Illinois, J.B. Pritzker. And meanwhile, you, you know, the stories about Ron DeSantis in Florida, about what a, what a, you know, idiot he is and how he's jeopardizing public health. Christy Noem in South Dakota um, has come under fire for her handling of the crisis. South Dakota's got one of the fewest numbers of cases and deaths in the country. So, you know, the media certainly has its biases and they're coming through in the coverage. I mean, Michigan's another situation where Gretchen Whitmer, you know, is being talked about as a vice presidential candidate and Michigan has had its fair share. I mean, it's, you know, in crisis as well. So I do think the media has has a role that they are playing in this. And and it's certainly to the benefit of, of Democrats uh, and some of these Democratic governors and and to the detriment of, obviously, President Trump, but also some of these Republican governors as well. Um, switch for a minute here and just, uh, you know, Mitch McConnell said something this week that was interesting. Um, President Trump did say this week that uh, funding for the states is, quote, probably next on the list of sort of uh, relief measure on, the, on part of the federal government. But Mitch McConnell says that they should consider filing for bankruptcy instead. And it's not a popular idea uh, with uh, Certain governors, as you can imagine, Andrew Cuomo, who you mentioned, um, was quick to criticize that. Is McConnell out on a limb here, Carl, alone, or are there other Republicans who are sort of saying, hey, wait a minute, this amount of aid is going to have real economic consequences? 
it was a tenured thing to say, and McConnell shouldn't have said it. It was bad politics, and he's supposed to be a politician. The merits of bankruptcy, it's not even time to talk about that yet. What's, what's going on with him is, you know, the New Yorker just did a savage attack on him. These big state media people, to, to, point, to Tom's point, not, not so much the big state, the blue state governors, but the big state media are really slandering states, you know, like Kentucky. And I think he... He, he said that more in frustration. I don't think it's, I, but I think it was an unfortunate thing for him to say. In the meantime, the Democrats have gotten a lot of criticism for trying to bring in ancillary issues, you know, their, their, their wish list at this time. But Republicans can be criticized too for trying to rush this process along. You know, when I learned this week that Harvard, with a $40 billion endowment, had applied for and gotten these funds, I, I guess they, they're going to give them back now. And, I think Stanford did the same and some of these other schools. That just sabotages the whole idea of this lockdown. If you're a working class person in Mitch McConnell's Kentucky and you're out of a job and Harvard is applying for these funds, you think this is all hoax is not the right word, but an insider's game and you're angry. And I, th- I think that's what's going on. I think these, these elite institutions like Harvard actually sabotage the idea of a lockdown and, 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 and in a subtle way, sacrifice people's health because they just make people think the whole thing's an insider's game. Let me jump in here because I think one of the things that precipitated Mitch McConnell's comment was this letter that was sent from the state Senate president uh, in Illinois. This guy's name is Don Harmon. He's a Democrat. Democrats have a supermajority in the Senate. Sent a letter, which was revealed to the media, um, <clears throat> to the Illinois congressional delegation asking them to ask for a $41 billion bailout from the federal government for the state of Illinois, including $10 billion to handle our pension liabilities. Now, J.B. Pritzker has said that we're taking a coronavirus hit and next year's budget is going to be anywhere from about six and a half to seven and a half billion dollars. We're going to have a seven and a half billion dollar hole as a result of lost commerce, uh, taxes, you know, all of that stuff. But what I think Mitch McConnell was responding to is the idea that these states that have fiscally mismanaged themselves for decades, in our case, in Illinois, you can look at New York, you can look at some of these other states that have serious fiscal issues. They have been mismanaged for decades. And for them to try and use the coronavirus as an excuse to squeeze money out of the federal government to bail them out for their behavior over the last few decades is is unacceptable. And in those instances, they should consider bankruptcy. And I think that's, look, we've been talking about bankruptcy in the state of Illinois for a a long time. Richard Porter has written a number of columns about the state and also the city of Chicago declaring bankruptcy. It's an issue that is really, it's a live issue. It's in play. And so I think that that's one of the things that Mitch McConnell was was responding to. And we also saw the National Governors Association send a similar letter asking that funding from the federal government be unrestricted so that uh, a lot of this helicopter cash could just go to whatever uh, hole states needed them to plug with it. Um, I asked uh, Mnuchin and I asked President Trump whether they wanted funding to be unrestricted. I didn't get a, a straight answer out of out of either of them. Uh, but this is the coming fight. And I think that um, a lot of people, to both of your points, are frustrated when they see all of this money being spent and some folks being able to cut to the front of the line because of uh, prestige or access. Meanwhile, they're stuck at home. And uh, I, I could see this this bankruptcy issue causing a lot more frustration for some of those folks in those states. But isn't this inevitable? I mean, you have the, these measures passed, you know, at lightning speed, 
you know, draft, not, not carefully drafted. How could they be? And of course, there are going to be loopholes and mistakes in the drafting, which we have to go back and fix. I mean, the public, you know, a number of public companies received uh, funding and they're starting to give it back. The universities receive funding. They're going to have to give some of it back. At some point, you have to sort of understand that the very nature of a crisis demands quick and sometimes messy uh, response. And that's what we have right now. So, so Carl and I have a difference of opinion about this and, and we can hash it out right here and now because I'm I basically agree with that Andy I mean we are in the middle of a crisis and 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 that means we need to move quickly and yes there are going to be warts and there are going to be things that there will be bridges to nowhere but in in the great uh, <laughs> phrasing of that that uh, government sage Nancy Pelosi we've got to pass the bill to find out what's in it I mean we need to really get the money to these folks you had thousands and thousands and thousands of small businesses that had diligently filed their applications as quickly as they could get them done through their banks and ended up with nothing. Now, did some of those m- monies go to, to big corporations? Y- yes, and, and they shouldn't have. They, that was not fulfilling the mandate and the spirit and intent of the law. But there were plenty of small businesses that, that did get money, and there were plenty of small businesses that were still waiting in line to get money. And the idea that we would wait days and weeks uh, because we wanted to, well, in the case of the Democrats, wanted to get more money for other things. But in the case of what Carl would say is we need to draft this carefully so that it's done properly and we don't end up with a bunch of, you know, bloat and, and you know, extraneous stuff. In my opinion, that's, that's, that's throwing the baby out with the bathwater. There are tons of, tons of small businesses that need this money, um, are re- basically struggling to stay keep their doors open. And when those doors close, there are no people to hire back. I mean, those jobs are gone. Those businesses are gone. And and that's that's the end of the ballgame. So I'm I'm all for, for speed. And I think any delay and the delay that even occurred was too much. Carl, you've been called out. Yeah, I, I, I have. Tom has five children. I have three. I, I'm, you know, when we what does that I, have to do with it? I'll tell you what it has to do with it. <laughs> good defense. Good defense. My good ch- way to start. My children, my children are probably going to have inherited debt of, you know, 500000 per kid on the, just on this money that we've spent today that we have no intention of paying back and no way to pay back to the federal treasury. Tom's willing to bankrupt um, his children and grandchildren so that uh, the pizza parlor down the street will remain open. But I think it probably should have... I, <laughs> <laughs> I, think they, I think they should have taken an extra week or two and written a, a bill more carefully that actually targeted the people who needed the money. I have uh, zero children, so I'm clearly qualified to comment on this. Um, I think you are a child. <laughs> <laughs> I think what we're seeing is that um, because of the speed that the initial bill was written with, yes, there was a sense of urgency. But there were also a lot of unintended consequences. For instance, there are some employers who want to get access to these funds, um, but they know that if they are unable to keep their staff on the payroll, they won't be eligible for the loan forgiveness. Well, also included in similar legislation uh, was unemployment insurance, a provision that made it so attractive for some individuals who were going to be receiving more income from unemployment insurance than they would to go back into the workforce. It puts some of these small employers in a position of, you know, how do I keep my workforce if my workforce can make more money while being unemployed? And that's just one small problem I think we're going to run into when legislators moved in haste. 
because uh, legislating in a crisis creates um, you know more speed bumps down the road more often than not. You know, and some of these jobs that are being saved are lower paying jobs, and some of them are you know folks who work off of tips and things and restaurants and, and whatnot. And so this story was about a small business that the owner. Uh, you know, was really struggling to get this loan, finally got the loan and and got her employees on a conference call. And they were upset with her because they were now going to, they would have made more money going on unemployment. Um, and she thought she had done this, this wonderful thing for her, for her employees uh, to get this loan. And that was not how it was received. So that that's a real thing that's happening out there. And I think those concerns were, were not misplaced. You know, we're talking about unintended consequences, and there's that great quote attributed to Rahm Emanuel, never let a good crisis go to waste. And it seems that everyone, whether you're an opinion writer or a politician, an interest group, uh, everyone sees this crisis as proof that whatever they were arguing before is now even more important to solving the crisis. And there was a piece we published in uh, Real Clear by Daniel McCarthy, uh, Why Joe Biden's America Loves a Lockdown. A populist take on this, and then the idea that you know knowledge workers sort of can work safely uh, behind. It's an their, admittedly uh, uh, inflammatory uh, headline <laughs> title to the piece. Yes, did you write it, Tom? <laughs> I did not write it. That was the headline that was actually on the piece. Okay. That, that, so, that was the piece. In that the was a cut and paste. Yeah. yeah. Not to belabor the point, I think you guys know what I'm getting at here. Is that what 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 is America going to look like after this? I mean, are we sort of going to end up in a really different place? Or are we going to go back to where we were before? Well, you know, I I would answer that in a generality, and then I'll let others talk. This is Carl. Humankind has a pretty good record of out of the ashes of disaster comes better things. I mean, the Black Plague helped end the feudal system and led to capitalism and led to the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. Uh, Japan and Germany were literally in ashes after World War II. And, you know, Germany became the strongman of Europe and Japan owned enjoyed 40 years of prosperity. So, you know, I think, I think human beings left to their own devices, um, figure out how to come out of things like this stronger. The, I guess the, the joker in the deck is whether our two party system is so scoleric, it'll retard that normally positive human ability. Uh, Joe Biden at a fundraiser earlier this week, um, brought this up and he, he said, uh, the pandemic has made people realize uh, some of, quote, the institutional changes we can make without us becoming a socialist country or any of that malarkey. Um, and so it was classic Joe Biden in that it managed to uh, anger both sides of the argument on the Democratic side. Um, it uh, angered some folks who are in favor of democratic socialism. Uh, and then it angered other folks who you know, said that he was sort of politicizing um, a, a pandemic. But I think that um, th- there is significant change that, uh, you know, politicians want to make after after this crisis is over. But I think what is more interesting for the long term is how citizens view their own government. Um, are we going to see uh, citizens sort of move in a libertarian direction because of frustration with government waste? Um, or are we going to see citizens who accepted a, a check in their their mailbox from the government and and who perhaps uh, qualified for one of these loans um, become more comfortable with with government, uh, you know, being more involved? Either way, I think that uh, you know the current and the next crop of of politicians are going to try and use that uh, to their advantage. 
Tom? Yeah, and I would add, <clears throat> I mean, there is a lot of talk about America 2.0, what comes next and how we can uh, – and I, I agree. You see Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez saying, look, this this is a perfect opportunity to push through progressive reforms on healthcare and the environment and the Green New Deal and all these things. And I do think there will be a push. I, I'm less concerned about where we end up politically than I am about – I. You know, one of the undervalued stories is is how dramatically the the Great Recession of two thousand eight really changed changed the fabric of the country. I mean, you had it was a traumatic experience. It was a, a rending moment where you had Wall Street got bailed out, and Main Street got left behind, and and the result of that was not only a change in our politics in terms of the Tea Party, but really traumatic trauma that was felt by. You know the lower class, the working class. You had the opioid crisis bloom out of that. Uh, mental health issues, all of that, and this is orders of magnitude worse than that, in my opinion. I mean, if we thought that was something that that really split the the working class from the professional class, and this is to the point of Daniel McCarthy's piece, you have folks in the professional class, the elites that are at home, they're doing podcasts right now. Uh, they've got their jobs. They've got their paychecks. Uh, and don't, don't don't disparage those of us who do podcasts. <laughs> Just trying to make the point. Uh, but <laughs> meanwhile, you've got other folks who who have literally been told by the government that they are no longer allowed to make a living to pay their bills and feed their families. But Daniel McCarthy's point is: some of these folks are allowed to work. You've got people who are driving trucks and you know, stocking shelves and doing lawn care. And I mean, all this stuff is happening. So some people are getting to work, others are not. And I think it is really going to breed a sense of resentment, bitterness, mistrust, toxicity. The consequences of that are going to be, are going to last for for years, decades, generations. I don't think we appreciate that. And I, I worry what the future holds for us when we finally come to grips with that. George Packer had a piece in The Atlantic, which uh, was the full-throated expression of this and and really predicted sort of three classes would emerge out of this, the knowledge workers, uh, let's not pick on podcasters, but let's just use them <laughs> as an example. And then people who have jobs and then people who just don't have jobs at all. The degree to which this is hitting small businesses is something that I think is, is unprecedented. I, I, I mean, I live in Annapolis, Maryland. You walk down the main street of Annapolis, Maryland, it is a ghost town. All of those shops are shut with the exception of the CVS on the corner. You know, that group of, of, of entrepreneurs, uh, th- those people who run those shops, um, you know, that's the tea party. That's, um, uh, you know, I don't think they're going to go quietly into this good night. I think that they're going to be active about this. I guess we should just all stay tuned. I mean, I do think, look, this is, this is where it's, in some sense, apolitical. I live in a very, very liberal town, Evanston, Illinois, one of the most liberal communities in in the country. And we have our own little row of of shops and restaurants that's sort of in our little section of Evanston, Northwest Evanston, which is separate from sort of downtown Evanston and 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 even more separate from the city of Chicago, our main street is closed. There's, and these are all little boutique things. They're great shops. And we know some of the people who own them, you know, they're part of our, the fabric of our community. And I'm not sure how many of them are going to make it. 
I mean, our governor just extended our lockdown for another five weeks until May 30th. And these businesses, uh, you know, a lot of them, again, some of them are doing, you know, doing takeout, but a lot of them are clothing shops and retail and toy stores and, you know, all the little things that make communities what they are. And I'm not sure how many of them are going to be left. And again, these are not folks who would ever consider themselves part of the Tea Party or even Republicans. I mean, they're just small business owners and a lot of them are progressive, but they're all suffering greatly and and they may not make it. Carl, you're our resident optimist here. So why are we wrong? Well, I don't know that you're wrong, but I'll, I'll say this. I think when we come out of this and we will, the country needs to have a philosophical conversation with itself. And it's not about federalism or or even how much money the government should borrow. It's a more basic question than that. I don't know that Donald Trump or Joe Biden are the kind of philosopher kings that can lead this discussion, but it's about how much individual freedom that we can have in this in the 21st century in a crowded planet where global travel is instantaneous. You know, you have now people who are ordered by their governors. It's it's not like martial law. You are ordered to stay home. You cannot work. You cannot drive. You cannot leave your house. If you decide to protest or even, and by protest, I mean even a little thing, take your kids to a park, you'll get, a policeman will give you a ticket. If you demonstrate, you'll be not only given a ticket, but called names. The Washington Post will attack you as a, as a nihilist. And Facebook will not even print, will not even publicize your meeting places. I think people are going to have a reaction against that. I think to be, a, to be an American means a desire for freedom. But we have to balance that against public safety. So I think what we're in store for after this is a conversation that should be on, conducted on a high level because each side has a pretty compelling argument. Carl, you are so you're, – you're, <laughs> that's very optimistic but also terribly naive. I mean we are living in a, a funhouse mirror world that's dominated by you know partisans on both sides and Twitter, which is so, so – not reality and distortive. There's no way that conversation can take place in the current political environment, and I don't understand. I don't see how it's going to get better. I see it only getting worse, and maybe that's you know that's obviously my glass is half empty in that regard. Well, on that cheerful note, we're going to have to leave it. But I want to thank my guests. I want to thank Carl Cannon, Phil Wegman, Tom Bevan. This has been the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, April 24th. And if you want to find out more, check out RealClearPolitics.com. And thank you for listening. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth.